Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is good to be here this morning and to be preaching. I am particularly excited today because of the passage we are in. We're in Colossians 1, and a friend of mine likes to talk about desert island chapters of the Bible. The idea being that if you were stranded on a desert island and could only choose three chapters of the Bible to take with you, which chapters would you choose to bring? It's kind of an interesting discussion. I don't know why he likes to talk about it so much, because he always chooses the wrong chapters. But... <laughs> I would submit to you that Colossians 1 should be very high on your list um, and should probably, in fact, if you're about to be stranded and you have to make a split decision, Colossians 1, 2, and 3 just really aren't a bad way to go. So keep that in mind, but it is yeah, for the next time you're almost stranded on a desert island. But it's a great passage. Colossians 1, starting in verse 21, and you can go ahead and turn there, and when you get there, you can stand up, because we're going to read it. Only three, chat, or three verses that we're going to read today, so kind of a short passage, but really dense. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God, we are, thank you. We are thankful for this passage. I pray that we would exalt Christ this morning. By listening to your word, Father, and by the power of your spirit, let us worship you. Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The first chapter of Colossians, and really the entire book of Colossians, is all about the greatness of Christ. There's a short intro. He's talking about, Paul is talking to the Colossians about how he's been praying for them, that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. But once you get into verses 13 and 14, and especially once you hit 15, it is simply a description of the greatness of Christ. In fact, in verse 15, if you have a Bible that has kind of chapter titles in them, it probably says something like the preeminence of Christ, which is really just a fancy theological way of saying why Christ is so awesome. And that's what we get in 15, just this long list of everything, I suppose not everything, but an awful lot that is great about Christ. Paul is almost sort of writing Jesus' resume on why he's worthy of worship and adoration. Do you imagine being the hiring manager getting Jesus' resume? The image of the invisible God, that's nice. I see once you created all things, both visible and invisible. Why don't you tell me about that? I, uh, I'd hire him. Well qualified. But in verse 20, we start on the idea that we're going to look at today, this idea of reconciliation. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. At the cross, by his death, Jesus did something. He reconciled all things to him. The idea of reconciliation is primarily a change 
that you would change from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. And 20 is talking about the reconciliation of the whole world, that the whole world is going to have this change. If you flip back in my Bible, it's just one page. Back to Philippians chapter 2, I think it kind of explains this passage, what it means that the whole world would be reconciled. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, here we go. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day when everyone and everything will bow down to Christ. Some of them will be bowing down in honest worship and adoration of him, and others will bow down simply to acknowledge his lordship, but with no love for him and no worship of him. But everything, everything one day will submit to Christ. And that's the idea of the whole world being reconciled. That's what verse 20 is talking about. But in our passage in verse 21, we're going to narrow our focus a little bit. This is still talking about reconciliation, still talking about a change that happens going from enemies to friends, but this is talking about reconciliation of the individual, specifically the reconciliation of the church. And we're going to answer four questions about reconciliation. Sort of structure for the day, four questions so that we will more fully understand the greatness and supremacy of Christ. That's what Colossians are about. If we don't read this and discover Christ's greatness, then we've done something wrong. Our first question why is reconciliation needed? Why is it needed? And 21 handles this very easily. You who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Verse 21 is talking about your former life, if you're a believer. Your current life, if you're not a believer. But if, if you are a believer, the way you used to be, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. I know how much you like thinking about how you used to be. Everyone likes old pictures, but usually old pictures of someone else. Old pictures of yourself, maybe not quite so enjoyable. I grew up, uh, grew up in the 90s at a time when both neon colors and parachute pants were very popular. Parachute pants, of course, popularized by MC Hammer, of whom I had multiple cassette tapes. But the pictures, my goodness, the pictures just are atrocious. They're so bad. And some of you, I, hairstyles, facial hair, all kinds of things, I'm sure, you can think about how you used to look and, well, be embarrassed rather quickly. And for many of you, it's not just this external clothing, but how you used to act, the way you used to be, you might be a little embarrassed of. It might be difficult for you to remember that. Maybe there's someone in your life who remembers stories about you, and you're like, oh, don't let that person come near my children. But you used to be different, and this is exactly what verse 21 is talking about, but in the worst possible way. This is the biography of every believer. You once were alienated, first of all. The idea of alienated is that you are estranged, that you're cut off, you're out of the sphere of God's blessing. 
Paul uses this a couple of times in the book of Ephesians to refer to Gentiles as being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and being alienated from the life of God. They're just, they're just removed from it. The word is used elsewhere to talk about uh, husbands and wives who are estranged from each other or friends who are estranged. A lot of people, a lot of people know what this is like. So a lot of people who have had, it might be with a family member, it might have been with a spouse, it might be with a spouse, or a friend or whoever, that something happened. Could have been your fault, it could have been their fault, it could have been some just large misunderstanding that somehow ruined the relationship. It was somehow impossible to get over it. And that's the idea here with alienated. It's the most general of all of these terms. Terms we were, we were alienated from God. We couldn't be in the same room together. We were cut off. Not only were we alienated in this general sense, but Paul also gives a couple of specific examples the way in which we were alienated. We were two things, and these two things go together. We're going to talk about them both. You were hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds. And everyone recognizes that these two things, generally speaking, go together. Your actions almost always proceed from your thoughts. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes you have sort of instinctual reactions, muscle memory things. If you see a pencil rolling off the side of the table, you might just try and grab it really quickly without thinking, oh, I'm going to grab this pencil. Suddenly you're just like a hockey goalie doing a glove save. You're just nice and big. And you just move and you just do it. But most of the time, it's not like that. Most of the time, you're thinking about what you're going to do before you're going to do it. You might have been sitting on the couch some night, thinking to yourself, kind of want some ice cream. You ask someone else in the house, maybe your spouse, you kind of want some ice cream? I kind of want some ice cream. You're trying to put the onus on them. If they want it too, then maybe that's okay. Perhaps they respond, do we even have any ice cream? You might have eaten it all yesterday. Well, I can go get some ice cream. If you're going out, you can get donuts. Donuts and ice cream? These are the kind of conversations that we have in my house. You know you have them too. But you're thinking... You're contemplating this whole thing and eventually that's going to form into the action that you're going to take. The dessert you're going to choose. But this is exactly how the Bible describes our thoughts and our actions as well. They go together. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. Just in Colossians chapter 3, two chapters later, it sets this whole thing up again. In verse 2, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So it starts talking about your mind, set your mind on the things above. And then starting in verse 5 of chapter 3, it goes into this long list of actions that you can take. Mind first, actions later. Romans 8 is the exact same way. Mind first, actions later. Your actions proceed from what you think about. And our problem is that our minds were hostile toward God. Some of your translations might say that you were enemies in mind, and that's a fine translation. And that resulted in evil deeds, and not just like normally evil, and not everyone was going around stealing cars or anything like that. 
But because you had a mind that was hostile toward God, all of the actions that you took did not please him. And though the main point I want to talk about is reconciliation today, I can't help but feel like this is, this is, an, important, this is an important point to make. Many of you, all of you, have some kind of sin problem in your life. There is something happening. For most people, it seems like there's something habitual that you come back to over and over again. It would be nice maybe to have a nice variety of sins, cornucopia. But it's always the same sin, the same meal over and over again. Like, oh, if only, if only I could stop doing that one thing. And a lot of times the people take the, take the attitude of the answer to this is just to stop it, to stop it right now. And that's great if you can do it, but most people don't seem to be able to. The willpower just to immediately cease and desist. And God gives us his spirit and the ability to run from sin and to consistently run from sin. So that's, uh, th- th- that's a possibility. But I would submit to you that if you have a consistent sin problem, the answer is not to stop it, stop it right now. The answer is to consider the focus of your mind. What is your mind thinking about, dwelling on, and focusing on? If you've ever wondered... I've heard people express the desire to wake up in the morning and immediately have their mind on Christ. How do you do that? I'm just, man, I'm desperately hoping that I can get 10 more minutes of sleep. But how do you just wake up and think, Jesus? A friend of mine always likes to tell me that the key to waking up with your mind on Christ is to go to bed with your mind on Christ. And then what you think about will lead into right actions. What are you thinking about? And how is that affecting what you do? Think about that. But all of these are why reconciliation is needed. There were multiple problems, alien, hostile mind, engaged in evil deeds. The next question we're going to answer is how does reconciliation happen? And we'll start that in verse 22. And it's interesting how, this, how it begins. The first three words, he has now reconciled. He has now reconciled in, the body, in his body of flesh by his death. To begin with, reconciliation is Christ's doing. That you could go from being an enemy of God to a friend. You would think there would be this long list of things to do, things to accomplish, achievements to attain. But there's not. Christ has done it. That's the first thing to realize, is that not only did you not do anything to attain the reconciliation that you have before God, but you could not have done anything. God had to be gracious to you. God had to send Christ in order for you to be reconciled. And he did that. He did exactly that. Christ came. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. How did it happen? Christ's death. Christ died for you. And there might not be another theological truth in the Bible about Jesus that I find more fascinating 
than the fact that he died for us. It's such a weird, it's such a weird thing to think about that and we, we quote this passage in the Bible all the time. Awana, I, I hear it in Awana, for the wages of sin is death. And Christ died and those things just go right together and that's great. But I'm constantly struck by the strangeness of it. I have been mad before in life. Who knows? Maybe I've been mad at you. I don't know. But, and you've been mad at someone also. Maybe you've yelled. Maybe you've screamed. Maybe you've said nasty things. Maybe you've stomped around. Maybe some of you are stomper, perhaps. But it all comes out in a variety of different ways. Have you ever killed someone when you were angry at them? When they did you wrong? I doubt it. I'm not sure that I want to know if you have. But death, this is what we're talking about here. We did something wrong to God, and the penalty for that is death. And it's not just for the big sins. It's for every sin, any sin, death, death, and death. And it seems so bizarre that this could be the case. It doesn't take me that long to sin. Even if I'm sinning my entire life, 85 years or something like that, at the end of my life I will die. And we're never, when we say the wages of sin is death, we're never just talking about physical death. We're talking about eternal death. And 85 years of sinning, as bad as that could be, really, eternal death. It's hard to wrap your mind around that God would have wrath against sin. My guess is some of you have thought about that and questioned that and wondered, how is that right? I think the fact that Christ died, I think that's one of the things that points most to his greatness and supremacy. And so I want you to understand why it was necessary Imagine, imagine I called you on the phone, perhaps this afternoon. I called you, and I express anger with you. I'm mad, and in fact, I'm mad enough that I threatened to kill you. Not your usual pastoral call, <laughs> I think. So I call you, and I say I'm going to kill you, and imagine that you believe me. And you go to the authorities. You explain the situation. What, what happens in that? What happens? I got legal counsel for this and tried to understand, like, what would be, what would be the actual, like, what is the actual problem? And I guess that it depends on how specific I am. If I call you and tell you I am in the car on my way to kill you tonight, that's a serious thing because there's, there's some specificity to it and, and it is, uh, it's imminent. It's going to come soon. But if I just call you and I'm sitting at home and I, and I tell you, oh, I'm going to kill you sometime, you're welcome to call the authorities, but they're probably not going to jump in your car and race right over to your house. Imagine a similar situation. I get on the phone. I dial 1-800-WHITE-HOUSE, whatever it is. I ask for President Obama. They put me right through, of course. 
I say, Barack, I am so mad at you for, I don't know, probably healthcare or something, but I'm mad for some reason or another. And I threaten him. I'm going to kill you, President Obama. Do you think I receive a different response from the authorities? My guess is yes. Why is that? What justifies the different response? I think the fact of the matter is you are just slightly less important than President Obama, at least as far as the Secret Service is concerned. The problem, it was the same crime, took the same amount of time. It was the same thing in every respect except for who I sinned against. And that necessitated further action. That's just against the president, our president. Imagine sinning against an infinitely holy God. Someone who is supremely holy, completely perfect in every way. Imagine sinning against someone like that. Disrespecting someone like that. When you sin against an infinitely holy God, the right punishment is infinitely more severe. Every time you sin, every time you rebel against God, you are committing cosmic treason. And that is a capital crime. And so, and so it's right. It's not just that I'm asking you to believe in some God who just flies off the handle every time anyone does something wrong. And oh, we just have this mean, capricious God. Death as the wages of sin is right and just. And it is so because of God's infinite holiness, his infinite perfections. And so Christ's death, that Christ died for us, the theological term we use for this is substitutionary atonement. That, that Christ was our substitute, that he took our place. We deserve to die but Christ died instead. And his sacrifice, his payment for sin was so infinitely great because he himself is infinitely holy as well that it not only satisfied the deserved payment for your sin, but made it possible for the entire world to be reconciled to God. I think that makes Christ look pretty great. That his death was capable of that. He died for us. Made us friends with God when we were enemies. Other than making us friends, what else does reconciliation accomplish? The passage actually gives us a few things. Other places in Scripture... Ephesians 1 comes to mind, talks about our salvation as a means for God's glory. This doesn't happen to focus on God's glory as much as what Christ does for us through reconciliation. So it's kind of a cool contrast. God gets glory, but also we, we receive things other than a friendly relationship with God. 
he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We had three problems before, alienated, hostile mind, engaged in evil deeds. Now, through reconciliation, we have three benefits, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. The idea of holiness is separation, consecration, or devotion to service to God. It's the idea of holiness, that you have been separated somehow, set apart or consecrated for service to God, worship to God, devotion to God. When I think of the word consecrated, my immediate thought is the tabernacle or the temple. Tabernacle is kind of an interesting thing. They had set it up, it was like a tent in the Old Testament where, where God resided. And there were a number of things that happened in the tabernacle, but it, around the tabernacle was how all the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. And they had a number of things inside the tabernacle that had all been consecrated and devoted to God. They had, a, they had an altar there. They had a, a, a lampstand that they could light up. They had all this, it cracks me up, they have just bowls and utensils. There's a china cabinet in the tabernacle, I guess. And could you imagine the priest waking up, right? They're going to have a 6 a.m. sunrise sacrifice. And so he wakes up, it's 5.30, he's got a little bit of time. So he rolls into the Holy of Holies, grabs a bowl, grabs some Honey Nut Cheerios. Wash it out, put it back. Would that happen? There's no way. There's no way. It's a bowl. Cereal. I mean, honey, the cheers are good. But this is a bowl that had been consecrated. It had been set apart, set aside, devoted exclusively to God. And we've been made holy in the same way. We are not meant for common use, but we are meant to have lives that are now capable of serving God. We are meant to be separated for God's glory. Not only are we holy, but we're blameless. And in fact, both of these words go together. They both have to do with, they're both sacrificial words. They talk about animal sacrifice. And so the idea of a blameless sacrifice is, is essentially the same idea as a spotless sacrifice. It describes the quality of the meat. You're not supposed to give your underfed animal with a broken hip, you know, as your sacrifice. Like, oh, this thing wasn't going to, just got gnawed on by a wolf yesterday. I guess we'll just sacrifice this one. You're supposed to give your very best animals as offering. So a spotless offering, a blameless offering is what we are. It's high quality. It's like meat you get from Costco. Not only holy and blameless, but above reproach. And now we're changing from sacrificial language to legal language. The idea of being above reproach is that no one can bring no one can bring a charge against you. Another of my favorite passages in scripture is Zechariah 3, which I've actually preached here before. And Zechariah is having this vision of Joshua the high priest standing in the throne room and Satan himself is there to accuse him. 
I don't even want to think about how bad Satan could make me sound, telling only the truth about me. Let alone Satan as the father of lies. What kind of plausible sounding lies could Satan tell about me to God? In Zechariah 3, God shuts him up. He doesn't want to hear it. And this is exactly what it's like for us. There is nothing that can be brought against us, no charge that can be brought against us, no sin that we committed can be brought against us to indict us anymore. We're beyond reproach. We've been made holy. We've been made blameless and spotless. And it would be one thing for you to be blameless and above reproach to me, for me to have nothing to blame you for, for me to not reproach you at all. But look at this. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, before God, you can stand completely justified, completely reconciled. It's wonderful. How is reconciliation confirmed? We know what's going on here. We were alienated and hostile mind engaged in evil deeds. Christ came. He did something for us. He died for us. And that's made us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. But how do, how do we know if we've actually got, got in on that? We've already said not everyone's going to be reconciled in the same way. Everyone will recognize Christ's lordship, but not everyone is going to be saved. How can we confirm that we're actually saved? And this is actually the scary part of the sermon. If there were going to be any scary parts, this would be it. In verse 23, there's one word here that might make you a little bit nervous. If. It all sounded good up till there. Oh, yeah, I want to be holy and blameless and beyond reproach before God. But this only happens on a certain condition if indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. That could make you a little bit worried. The concern would be that you could be reconciled to God, no longer an enemy but a friend, and that you could have been alienated, hostile, mind engaged in evil deeds, and now all of these three good things, but that somehow, through a lack of hope or through a lack of faith, that could be, that could be taken away from you somehow. You could go back to being unreconciled to God. I want to encourage you. I think the Bible is very clear throughout that the nature of saving faith is that it is always lasting faith. Let me say that another way. You can't lose your salvation if you've truly attained it. And I don't believe that this passage is teaching that. That if you stop continuing in faith, then you'll go back to being unreconciled. But we still need to explain it because there is a conditional word there if you continue in faith. And the Bible, as it turns out, th there are multiple kinds of conditional statements and questions. Some questions you ask and you know the answer to those questions. And other questions you ask, you're honestly asking. You, you want to know the answer to that question. Let me give you an example. Uh, I've, I've performed a couple of weddings. 
I have asked the question, do you take such and such, so and so, to be your lawfully wedded wife? I was pretty sure I knew the answer to that question before I asked it. I was asking, but I, I, I had some idea of what I was going to get. And the same works the other way. Do you take you know, so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband? It, it, works, it works both ways, and you, you're pretty sure you know the answer when you ask that question. Now, have you ever asked someone to pick you up from the airport? That's a different kind of question. Sometimes they're all for, oh, yeah, no problem. I work right by John Wayne. You know, I can get you right before work, blah, blah, blah. LAX, though. <laughs> you ever asked someone to pick you up from LAX? Man, you don't know what's about to happen. Yet, are we good enough friends? Will you, will you drive all the way there? And you're just crossing your fingers, hoping, man, I, I don't know if our friendship can survive this. It's a legitimate question. Do you see the difference between those types of questions? Sometimes you're always asking, but sometimes you know and sometimes you don't. And this is one of those conditions, though it's presented as a condition, it assumes the answer. If you continue in the faith, but of course you'll continue in the faith. If you have unshifting hope, but of course you'll have unshifting hope. And so your reconciliation will be confirmed by that. Will be confirmed by your continuing faith and hope. This passage tells us about what Christ has done for us. It's the greatness of Christ through the gospel of reconciliation. And what I'm overwhelmed by more than anything else... And what I want you to remember from this is the unparalleled grace that we have received from God through Christ. I understand that life is hard and you might, man, you might every day feel the burden of your life. And you might wonder sometimes where God's grace is. Why haven't you received more of it? Could you have done something to have worked this out different so, so, that, so that you could have more grace, some grace, any grace? And what I want to encourage you is that if you are a believer, you have already been given so much grace. You were so hopeless before God, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Because of your mind, everything that you did brought no joy or satisfaction to God. And He came after you. God sent His Son to die for you, to die for the whole world. God has made you holy and blameless and above reproach. God assumes your continued faith and hope in the gospel. Other passages talk about 2 Corinthians 5, how we're new creatures in Christ. Philippians 2 again talks about how it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. We know in John chapters 14 and 16 that we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us and to assist us to live rightly before God. 
You have been given so, so much. And it's easy to forget that grace. I know that. But I'm asking you to remember it, to read passages and remember that because that makes Christ look great. That you remember what he's done. That you remember how much you have already been given. That you're thankful, so thankful that he saved you that he helped you, that he reconciled you. Some of you, some of you know that you are not reconciled to God. You have not put your faith in Christ. You don't hope in the gospel. And I would tell you that God has extended grace to you too. You have sinned against him your entire life. Wages of sin is death. He's allowed you to continue to live. He's given you everything that, he's ha- that, that you have and, and he's brought you here so that you would understand that God is still extending his grace to you. You can be reconciled to God and you know exactly how. Through faith. You can't earn it. But Christ has died for you in such a way that if you put your faith in him, if you believe in him, you can be a friend to God. I pray that you would do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for everything that you've given us. Thank you for your grace and kindness. God, thank you for Christ and his greatness. I pray that we would honor and exalt him pray that we would worship him in spirit and in truth, God. I pray that everyone here would be reconciled to you and that we would enjoy being your friend. Father, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.